I want to take you back to the mid-1990s. I believe the year was 1996, and there was a new product in the cleaning market for home cleaning. The product was called Febreze. This is not Febreze, but it's very much like it. Uh, I had to steal this from someone because I don't have Febreze in my house, but this is a, an odor neutralizer. In 1996, this was a big deal. See, uh, the only cleaning products that could make things smell better at that time were products that that uh, covered up bad smells with good smells. At least smells the company wanted you to think smelled good. And they just had to kind of mask the bad smells with perfumes. Well, this was revolutionary. This was an odor neutralizer, something that could actually eliminate bad smells. The, the product was called Febreze. The parent company was Procter & Gamble, and they had spent years and millions of dollars in research, and they believed they had a revolutionary product, one that people would rush to buy. As they explained the product to people, would you like a product that could eliminate smells? Yes, people said. They would rush to buy that. They thought, Procter & Gamble thought that they were sitting on a cash cow and that the release of this product is something that would upend the cleaning market. Well, they released it in two select, in just a few select markets, and something very interesting happened. Nobody bought it. Um, even these people who said they wanted their odors eliminated, how great it would be to have a product that could eliminate bad odors, nobody rushed to buy this. And the, and the researchers were stunned. They were confused because they thought they were sitting on a gold mine. So they went back to some of the individual people in these test markets, people who said they would buy it, and they conducted interviews, actually some of the interviews in their homes to find out, you said you would buy this, why aren't you buying it? One of the homes they went to, uh, there was a, uh, the home in the home there, nine cats lived in the homes. No offense to those of you who are cat owners. But the researchers in walking to the door could smell the cat smell before the door was even opened. They open the door, they go in, one of the researchers gagged inside the house because of the smell. When they asked the lady about the smell, this was what she had to say. It's usually not a problem. I notice the smell about once a month. So that was like, that unlocked something for the researchers. You see, they had marketed this product as one that could eliminate bad odors, but you know what they discovered? People, we tend not to notice the smells around us. We become used to them. Why would we need a product to eliminate bad odors if we don't have bad odors in our home? And who wants to admit that they need a product to eliminate bad odors? So this, as the marketers kept thinking about this, and they tried to study a few of the people that actually had bought it and they ran across one lady who used it in her cleaning routine and she said that she just went around the room spraying when she was done with her cleaning. She'd spray it on the couches that could eliminate the carpets. Do you remember the commercials from the mid-1990s? You have a woman who joyously is twirling around the living room just springing fresh airs and daisies, right? The, the windows open, the spring fresh air is coming in. They realized that people didn't want to change their entire cleaning routine and eliminate bad odors. No, this would just be something that would be a special treat. People didn't have to admit the fact that their homes were gross. They could just, um, uh, they, they, <laughs> it wasn't the way I meant for that to come out. They could just have this product and spray it and it would just add a little bit of, uh, he, here's the way one researcher put it. He said, Febreze, the ads implied, was a pleasant treat, not a reminder that your home stinks. That's where I got it from. 
So within, so what they did, they added just a little perfume from it. They changed the commercials. You know, this isn't an odor neutralizer. This is one more thing in the cleaning process, and your house will smell like daisies. Within two months, sales doubled, and in the next year, $230 million of Febreze sold off the shelves, and most of us have a product like it in our homes. And yet, I'm afraid that what happens here, where we uh, struggle to eliminate odors in our homes, struggle to admit that there's odors that need eliminated and we become immune to them, something very similar happens to Christians in our lives. Something very similar happens when we, we fail to... I mean, we understand that sin is a theological concept. We understand that Christ died for sins. But if we want to start getting down to the nitty-gritty that you and I are sinners and we have to repent of those sins and we need confession and we need a God who can come in and not just cover up sins but who can deal with our sin problem, well, then that begins to make us uncomfortable. And maybe we understand it in a casual sense of the gospel, but when it comes down to the point of pointing out individual sins, well, we begin to make excuses. And we talk about weaknesses and we talk about struggles, but to actually get to the point where we would say, no, I, I, I sinned and, and I need a Savior who can deal with this sin problem. I need to repent. I need to confess my sins. Well, that's fewer and farther between. Um, I think a similar thing happens in um, it, even this morning as I go through a sermon on sin and what confession and repentance looks like. We'll be tempted to look at the lives of others and, and particular sins we know of in their lives and, and, and perhaps put the bullseye on them, whereas first we need to look at the speck in our own lives. And the same thing then, not, so I've been trying to talk about personal lives, but let me talk about the corporate life of the church. Uh, I, I think a similar thing happens. Last week I made the statement near the close of my message that if you don't have sin, you don't have a gospel. Is that true? Do, do, you, do you recognize the importance of what we said by that? As churches, I think that sometimes we forget that uh, our exclusive focus is to deliver a gospel message that brings life-changing hope for sinners. And if we downplay the reality of sin, we begin to peddle a message that says God is here and wants to make your life better. God is here and wants to help you with your struggles. God is here and wants to help you with your discouragements. God is here and wants to give you a life that brings joy and satisfaction. Now, while those things are true, that's not the gospel. God, Jesus Christ didn't die to give you a little bit better life. Jesus Christ didn't die to give you a, a, a more happy feeling. Jesus Christ died because I'm a sinner. Because you're a sinner and our sin problem must be dealt with. So we're going to look at David. We're going to continue to look at what happened after his sin. If you're not familiar with the details of the story, we went through it last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And because of the spectrum of ages that we have in here this morning, I'm not going to go into great detail about his sin, but I would encourage you to read it sometime in 2 Samuel 11. Suffice it to say that, that David uh, was unfaithful to his marriage vows with a woman named Bathsheba. And when David realized his mistake, he wasn't ready to repent. He tried to cover it up uh, to the point where he was willing to take the life of the woman's husband uh, and, and have him removed, eliminated, and killed. 
And so here was David's sin and his mistake. And, and, and the most important spiritual advisor in David's life, the prophet Nathan, comes to him and he tells him this story. And, and he wants him to understand that he's been caught in his sin. And when David realizes it and repents, he goes to Psalm 51. And he, he, this, this psalm records for us where was David at emotionally. How did he realize his sin and what was his attitude before God? And I want us to look at it because it helps us to know how we're supposed to deal with our sin. And I want us to be encouraged by it this morning. That sounds odd, perhaps, a message about sin being encouraging. But here, here's the reality. Dealing with our sin, admitting that there's a problem, saying, yes, I need help, that's not the ultimate defeat, okay? That's not this defeatist, discouraged attitude. Um, dealing with sin is not finally about defeat. It's, it's not that failuristic attitude. It's certainly we do have to admit defeat, but more than that, it's the only pathway to hope and life, to come face to face with the reality of our sin. It's the only way we can find hope and encouragement and news that helps us as individuals. So I want you to see the hopeful picture of where this is headed, even if we have to come to grips with our sin. Here's our outline this morning as we walk through Psalm chapter 51. I don't normally give you a three-point outline, but this morning I will, and I'll tell you where they are and where we're going. As We're not going to walk through every section in the verse. There's more in there. Every verse in the chapter, there's more in there than we can cover, but we're going to look at David's condition. We're going to look at David's confession, and we're going to look at David's cure. David's condition, David's confession, and David's cure. And as we watch David walk through his problem with his sin, it will help us understand, well, where does that put us? Both for the person who has yet to come to Christ. If you're here this morning and an unbeliever, you, you need to realize that there is sin, that you need a Savior. You need help. You don't need just God to somehow improve your life. Coming to church and the gospel is not just another step in the, in the path of self-betterment. No, you need a Savior. And this is going to help us understand how to deal with our sin this morning. And if you're here and you're already a Christian, you've come to Jesus Christ in faith, there is still ongoing sin in the life of the believer. And without genuine confession and repentance, we won't experience the joy and forgiveness and hope and peace that God intends for us. So that's why we're going to walk through this in the way that we are this morning. Psalm chapter 51. And first we need to look at David's condition. Because here's the important thing. David understood his sin. You see, Nathan shows up on David's doorstep one morning, and just when it looks like perhaps David had gotten away, he brought Bathsheba into his home and married her, and there's a child now born into the family. And you kind of wonder, wow, why did David get away with it? But Nathan comes and knocks on the door, and he's going to confront him in his sin. By the way, why did God wait months, if not one to two years, to catch David in his sin? I don't have an answer for that this morning, and yet I want you to see that God will deal with sin, perhaps not on our timetable, but on his. And Nathan shows up, and he says, listen, there was a man, uh, two, two men in a city. There was one very rich man. There was one poor man. And the rich man had great wealth, flocks and herds, had a great many sheep to his name. And there was a poor man who only had one little sheep, one little lamb. He got her since she was very young. And this little lamb was treated as a member of the family. 
And there was a stranger that came into town, and, and the rich man was going to throw a feast, a party for this stranger that came into town. And rather than get one of his great many flocks and herds and bring a sheep and, and lay it here as a, as a meal for the feast and the sacrifice, he decides to go take and steal the one little lamb from the poor man who only had one. David was outraged in this. He said, surely the man must die. And Nathan points his finger at David and says, you are the man. And for whatever reason, finally David repents. He's broken. He had spent months hiding his sin. He had spent months somehow concealing it, somehow putting it out of his mind. And finally David realizes that he sinned against God. And, and he even makes a statement in 2 Samuel 11 that I have sinned against the Lord. So finally, how do we deal with sin? When our sin is pointed out to us, when we are under conviction by the Holy Spirit, we need to realize our condition is that we are people who are stuck in our sin, that we, that we are sinners, that there has been a transgression. Look at verse 1 and 2 where David asks for mercy. Look at, the, look at the last line of verse 1. He cries to God and he says, blot out my transgressions. Notice that word for sin, the word transgressions. Your translations may be different. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Hebrew Bible uses three different words here to talk about sin. In the version I'm using, they're translated transgression iniquity and sin all of them speak of sin but they bring a unique character and aspect to our sin they're helpful for us as we try to think through them the first word transgression is this idea of of crossing a boundary it has to do with rebellion and, and so David realizes that he has rebelled against God he has defied God in fact God points out to him in 2nd Samuel 11 he says you I had given you everything, David. And why did you despise the word of the Lord by taking what wasn't yours? David rebelled against God. A man named Eric Geiger has written a little book on the life of David, and he uses some illustrations to help us understand these words. So we're going to come back to this illustration to define these words. But imagine a father comes to his teenage son on the, uh, the night before all-important trash day in the house. And the father gives the responsibility for taking out the trash to the teenage son. Now, uh, the, the, the father says, son, I need you to take out the trash. The son says, yes, I will. But he goes back to some things in his room and he forgets. Or perhaps he gets busy. Whatever the reason is, the next morning comes and the trash isn't out there. That's not transgression. Okay? It's a mistake. Uh, perhaps sin was involved, but there could be any number of reasons why this happened. Let me play the scenario out another way, and this is the word David's talking about. The father comes to the teenage son. He says, son, it's trash day. I need you to take the trash out. And the son looks at the dad, says no, slams the door. How well would that go over? That's what David's asking for forgiveness for. He realizes that he has rebelled and he needs forgiveness. The second word then, if you look at verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Here's the idea of guilt. David realizes that he has guilt, that his heart has been twisted out of shape. This word carries that connotation that, that there's something not right in his heart. It's, it's twisted. There's impure motives. There's, there's iniquity. This is sin against God. So to come back to our illustration of the father and the teenage son, this, this 
could surprise you in the way this plays out. The father asks the teenage son to take out the trash and immediately the son jumps off the couch and he runs and he doesn't just take out the trash. He goes to the upstairs bathroom. He goes to the downstairs bathroom. He ties them in neat little bows. He sweeps up the crumbs that fell out of the first bag. He races them to the front door and he comes back and you might think success, but why did the son do it? It wasn't because he loved the father and wanted to please the father. It was because he loved himself and he was pretty sure the father would let him stay up late and continue to play video games if he did this with excellence, right? Huh? And so sometimes those tricky little motives get in the way and there's iniquity there that's still got to be dealt with and it looks like, you know, a lot of parents would be satisfied with that, but if there's there's sin involved there, this is the iniquity God clean. There's crookedness. You've said what straight is and my heart can kind of veer away and there's crookedness that needs to be dealt with. So the third concept is this. David says in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. This is what we often think of for sin, the idea of missing the mark. One person says it this way, it's an act or feeling that transgresses something forbidden or ignores something required by God's law or character, whether in thought, feeling, speech, or action. When we sin and we miss the mark of what God expects, and so here the father asked the teenage son to take out the trash, and he throws down what he was doing, and with a huff and a puff, he forgets the the bathroom trash, and he grabs the kitchen trash, and he drags it out the floor, spilling contents along the way. He throws it at the curb, mumbling something about his father, and he comes back in and says, there, are you happy? Well, he, he, he took out the trash, right? But he missed the mark. There was a standard that he violated. And so David realizes the point here is not so much that David is saying there's these particular ways I sin. He's getting the whole spectrum. There's a lot of different crooked ways that our sinful hearts can figure out how to sin against God. And David is simply saying, God, I need cleansed from all of them. He realizes that, that he's a sinful person and that spectrum can hide in the crooks and corners of his heart. And sometimes it looks like rebellion and sometimes it looks like obedience with impure motives, and he needs cleansed. And so he recognizes his sin. When you come down to verse 3, he says this, I know my transgression and my sin are ever before me. David realizes he can't get away from his sin. He acknowledges it completely with honesty. When you're stuck in your sin, when you're caught in it, do you acknowledge it completely? Do you call it sin? Do you say, I know this is ever before me? Or do you look for excuses to try to rationalize reasons why maybe it really wasn't sin? If we're going to deal with our sin in the way David does, I know my sin is ever before me. God, I'm here before you and I cannot hide. In fact, David says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes that his sin was first and foremost against God. Now, if you're following along, that should stop you in your tracks for a second and say, what? What about Bathsheba? David sinned against her. What about Uriah? David sinned against him. There are so many people that were sinned against and the consequences are going to be felt and affect by so many people in this situation. Why does David say that God against you and you only have I sinned? Here's here's why David says it. It's because he realized that his sin was first and foremost against a righteous and holy God. Last week we said sin is 
is not, uh, sin is always an attitude of the heart before it's ever an action of the hands. And so before, before David ever sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, he had lifted up his heart against God and said he despised the good gifts God has given him and said, I want more. He put himself in the place of God, despising fellow man, and David now realizes his sin. He understood that it was against God. He understood that, that his relationship with God has, what had been violated. Here's the way a couple of people explain this. One says, although we can sin against our body and our neighbor, first and foremost, we are always sinning against God himself. Since all proper human relationships are established by God, when you disrupt or corrupt the proper functioning of those relationships, you are sinning against the author of those relationships. That's why David sinned against God and God alone. And he realized first and foremost that his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was a sin against God. Matthew Henry puts it this way, to him, to God, to God the affront is given, and he is the party wronged. It is his truth that by willful sin we deny, his conduct that we despise, his command that we disobey, his promise that we distrust, his name that we dishonor. And it is with him that we deal deceitfully and disingenuously. So David's condition was one where he recognized his sin. He acknowledged it right away. He acknowledged it months later when Nathan confronted him. He didn't acknowledge it immediately. But once he was stuck in his sin, he says, God, my sin is ever before me. There's no mention in the passage about Bathsheba. There's no attempts to lay blame elsewhere. It's simply David before God and saying, God, I've sinned against you. All right, so all of you that are in Wired, let me just give a little application to you if we didn't have a children's message this morning. When your moms and dads come to you and, and they want to know if you have broken their rules and laws, right? You probably don't have laws in your house. You probably just have rules, right? And mom and dad say... They call you by name and say, did you fill in the blank? Did you come right away? Did you hit your sibling? If your first inclination is to start explaining it away or to say, yeah, but, or to say, I didn't hear you, even though we know you heard, that's not confession yet. That, that's, that's still trying to take a job that only belongs to God because God has put that your parents over you and, and your job is to follow their instructions. And if you're trying to explain away those reasons, then what you're really trying to say is, I know better than my mom and dad what the rules are for me. And, and that's the same thing David did in his sin. And adults, may we not do that as well to make excuses and uh, explain away our sin. Well, once David acknowledged his sin and he realized it and he says, here I am, I have iniquity, I have sin, I have transgressed. The first step of coming to grips with that is just saying, yes, this is who I am. This is my condition that I have sinned. And then he has a confession and he turns to God and, and he just cries out to God for mercy. Look at verse one. Here's what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. What does David do? In David's confession, he comes to God and says, have mercy. I've sinned. Wash me. Cleanse me. God, help. 
Richard Sibbs said this, there is more mercy in God than sin in us. There is more mercy in God than sin in us. That is blessed hope for those of us who count ourselves as sinners. Right? There's more mercy in God than sin in us. And so what does David do in his confession? He, this, this is why it's such a big deal when we're making excuses, when we're explaining away, when we're rationalizing. We haven't yet realized we need God's mercy. What we're trying to do is say, I might have made a mistake, but I'm not so sinful that I need God's mercy. I don't really have to confess this. I can justify it. I can explain it away. And we have not yet realized that we need to confess before God. And this is why it's so hopeful to realize that in our sin, that, that there, there is a way to have hope. You see, what, what, is the, what is the hope when we're stuck in our sin? What's the cure when we realize we have made mistakes? Can we just try harder the next time? Can we make a promise to never do it again? Can we just think that in David's case, he needed to work on a couple areas of sinful temptations in his life? Well, sure, he needs to put some place in those, some, some rules into place, some barriers, some guidelines, some rails in those areas. But first and foremost, he needed a completely transformed heart. That was his cure, David's cure. Let's look at it next. Let's look like at verse, come down to verse 10. Although, you know what, there's a bunch in verse 7 even as well. David knew what he needed. He knew he couldn't just try harder. He said this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David knew he needed washing. He needed cleansing. He wanted the joy and the gladness restored to him. He wanted the broken bones that God had taken and broken and he wanted them restored. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There's David's cure. He knows he needs a transformed heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. You see what David knew he needed? He said, God, help Take this heart and change it. Make it new. Why did David sin in the ways he did? Because his heart wasn't fully in tune with God. And he needed God to wash him, to clean him, to cleanse him. Why is it such a big deal when we're trying to assign blame to others for our sin? Because we don't realize that our heart is the one that needs changed. We're trying to say, if they hadn't, then I wouldn't have. And we don't yet realize that we need purged with hyssop, that we need a new transformed heart. Oh, this is why it's so important for us to catch these things. In fact, sometimes when we sin, we think, okay, I know I've made a mistake. I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day. I'm going to go to church the day after that. I will make sure that I can somehow do all the right things to bring myself along in God. Well, reading your Bible is probably something you should do when you're caught in sin. Going to church is probably something you should do. But it's not what makes you right before God. It just, it just isn't. Look what David says in verse 16. He says this, speaking to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And only then will there be sacrifices that God accepts as he closes out the chapter with a couple verses. David realizes, you know what? As he's stuck in his sin, God's not looking for him to... to, to, to come and just put on a good face. So if we were to go back into 1 Samuel, which we won't, Saul was caught in his sin. Samuel was the guy who was the spiritual prophet before Nathan. Samuel comes and confronts Saul. Saul makes excuses. Saul thinks he's going to offer sacrifices and somehow that will make him acceptable to God. And right there, there's a confrontation that there's the, it's pointed out that God won't accept sacrifices that are impure in that way. Thankfully, David has learned something and he responds and he realizes, wait a minute, my heart needs cleansed. Uh, I don't need to just start come doing and saying all the right things when I was messing up for a while. David needed transformed. He needed a new heart. And this is why I say that it's actually the only way to hope, life, encouragement, peace, forgiveness is to admit and acknowledge our sin. See, the fact that we're going to focus on sin this morning as a church body, I'm not here trying to discourage you and make you feel like you're a bunch of horrible, rotten people. I'm saying as a horrible, rotten person who has sin in his life, I've understood and you understand that the only way we can have hope is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, and though He was perfect, He laid His life down as a sacrifice for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. And unless we come to that point that we realize we're sinners, there's no hope for us. We can try all we want to do better. We can try all we want to have strategies that give us better home lives. We can try all we want to have anger management and heart management and uh, not visit certain websites at certain times of the day, but it won't help unless we get a new heart because we have a sin problem before God. And therefore, for us to realize that we are sinners, that's the first step in finding hope and life and peace. A man named Martin Luther about 500 years ago was commenting on a verse in Galatians that speaks of how Christ took our sins. Christ freed us from sins. And, and he was talking about the fact that Satan loves to come to us and accuse us of our sin. And, and that's why so often when we are told we have sin, no, I don't. I, I didn't hear you. <laughs> no, I didn't hit them. It was a love tap, right? That was maybe only something my family did. My kids don't do that. Me and my brothers did that. We recognize something is wrong, and yet as we're being accused, as we have to come face to face with the grips of our sin, Martin Luther struggled with that, and he recognized a beautiful truth in this. If you know anything about his life, he is someone that was plagued by guilt. He was constantly tormented by the accusations of his sin against him because he knew he didn't measure up to righteous, God's righteous and holy standards. And he, for years of his life, trying to be a priest, thought that the way through that was through man-made systems of righteousness. And it wasn't until he understood that only Jesus could bring righteousness that he had 
ammunition to battle against those accusations of Satan. And so he was commenting this, and he said, when Satan comes to me and tells me that I am a condemned sinner, here's my reply. I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I'm a sinner... You do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. We as a people need to come before God and acknowledge our sin. And you may be here this morning and don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, meaning you haven't yet come to the place where you've confessed your sins and realized there is something wrong with you. And that something wrong is called sin. And, and God's way of making that right was through his, person, through his Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life gave his life up as a sacrifice for ours. And that only by turning from our sins, placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, saying, he alone is my hope. Going to church won't help me. A pastor or a priest or bishop cannot remove my sins. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that I have any hope. And I place my faith there. I turn from these sins. I want to follow Jesus. Now, in the Christian life, we don't continue in sinless perfection. What's for us, those of us who know Christ as Savior? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brother or sister, if you're here as a Christian and you are caught in your sin, confess it, own it, don't make excuses. Run to Christ. He's the only one that can help. And so much of the discouragement that we face even in the Christian life is because we haven't yet dealt with our sins in the way that God expects and requires of us. You see, David knew something was wrong. He says, God, wash me, cleanse me, create in me a new heart, purge me with hyssop. David knew something was wrong. Here's the beautiful truth. It was a son of David who came and hung on the cross who would provide the cleansing that David need. It was a seed of David, a branch of David, the, the one that God would raise up to be our Messiah and our Savior. So here's the deal. We know something's wrong. If we were to be honest in the quietness of our hearts, we know that something is wrong, that we need cleansing, that we need forgiveness, that there is something about sin and shame and guilt and our actions that haven't been dealt with. And we'll never find it apart from the blood of Christ. He's the only one who can help. He's the only one who's worthy to help. He's the only one capable of dealing with this problem. The book of Revelation reminds us that on, on the final judgment day, there will be this, there this, this picture where we are gathered around God's throne. And there will be a set of books that are opened, and there will be another book that is opened. And, and Revelation, John says that, that, um, that we will be judged out of books out of which the deeds of our life are written down and recorded. And any of us that have to face that test out of what we've said, what we've thought, what we've done, we will fail that test. 
But John tells us that there's another book that's opened. It's called the Book of Life. And anyone whose name is written in the Book of Life, they don't face eternal judgment. Jesus is the only one who's worthy to take our sins and to say, I can, I can take care of this problem. He's the only one. All of our excuses and rationalizing away will not do anything for us on that judgment day. So I urge you, come to God, bring your sin. Christian, if you are, if you are meddling in ways that you ought not, be sure your sin will find you out. It will be much better for you to come face to face with your sin and to say, God, I need help. I need cleansing. No more excuses. Cleanse me. Jesus is the one that can provide that hope. Let's pray. Father, we gather before you as a group of people this morning who are in need of cleansing. There's not a one of us that is worthy enough to stand before you in our own righteousness. There's not a one of us that can deal with the problem of sin. Only Jesus Christ can do that for us. If there are unbelievers here this morning who need Jesus Christ, may you encourage them after the service to slip out and speak to myself, Pastor Kevin, another elder, someone that they know knows the gospel. If there are Christians here who haven't yet come to grips with their sin, Father, may your spirit do a work of conviction that only you can do. We ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.